As we just read in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Perhaps you, uh, for those of you that know me, you know that I grew up in California, in the United States, and I, if I had to choose between the two, I definitely would choose BC. I like colder weather. It's pretty cold outside right now. I'm not a big fan of the heat. But growing up, when I was about uh, one years old, as most of you know, I, I contracted asthma. And we didn't really know how bad the symptoms would be at that time when I had the asthma. Some people have asthma uh, worse, and some people have it pretty bad. Some people have it mild. And when you're one, you can't really tell. But uh, about the age of three or four, we began to see that my asthma was activity-induced. So when I would exercise or when I'd play sports really hard, I would get what we call an asthma attack. And what some of you can relate with me who have asthma or know somebody who does, I don't know the science behind it, but I'd have trouble breathing, basically. And sometimes it'd be mild. And when it was mild, by the age of three or four, I could, I, I could start to tell if it was bad or not. When you're really young, you feel the struggle of breathing, but you're doing something you love doing, so you just keep doing it anyway until it's really bad. But you get older, you get smarter, and you can start to feel the signs early. So what do you do? I go to mom, and she gives me my inhaler. How many of you have an inhaler? Anybody have one of those little, those little puffer inhalers? A few of you, four, four or five of you. Um, they give out inhalers for a whole bunch of things now, allergies and stuff. I had this inhaler, and I would... I take it, and after a couple breaths, I would breathe it in and out, and then I'd have to sit out. Whatever sport I was playing, I'd have to be done playing it for at least an hour until my lungs can recuperate. And then if I felt ready, I could maybe try continuing playing the game I was playing. Sometimes the inhaler wouldn't work. And when the inhaler wouldn't work, I'd have to resort to plan B, which was this big box that I had to carry around everywhere. And I think I've told some of you the story before. I had this big white box I had to carry around, and I would keep it in my backpack, and I'd carry this around everywhere I went. It was really annoying. I called it my Darth Vader box because inside this box, I'd open it up, and there'd be a mask. And I'd put the mask over, and this was my mom's way of making it fun for us because I could be Darth Vader. He's a bad person, though. Don't be like him. But anyway, we like Star Wars. So I'd put this mask on, and then we'd, we'd put in the, uh, the medication. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Albuterol, does that sound right? Anybody? No? Okay, whatever. So I, I'd put the medication in, and then uh, it would come through, and then I'd, I'd breathe it in, in and out, in and out for, I don't know, five minutes or something like that, ten minutes, and then I would take it off. And if I had an attack that bad where I needed the Darth Vader machine, then I was pretty much done with any sport that I was playing that day. I had to quit, at least for several hours. But as I got older... I started to learn when it was coming, so I would slow down, so I wouldn't need the machine, because it was always activity-induced, until one day I was sleeping in my bed, and I had an asthma attack, and that was weird. I wasn't, maybe I was having a vivid nightmare, I don't know, but I had an asthma attack in my sleep, and it, this one felt different. It wasn't, wasn't the the soft one that I needed my inhaler for, it felt really intense. And it was just suddenly, I was only about six years old, seven, 
I remember it wasn't too late. My parents, I could still hear them talking in the living room at night. I remember getting out of my bed, going down the hallway, and signaling to my parents that I was having an asthma attack. And the only problem was I couldn't speak. It was, it was really hindering my speech, and I was struggling to get words out. And moms, I think they just can feel it before it even happened. She could just sense as I was coming down the hallway, something was wrong. She was already coming to my aid, and they got the machine, and the machine wasn't work. my Darth Vader machine, it wasn't working quite like it's supposed to. It was helping a little bit, but I was still really struggling breathing. So they rushed me to the hospital, and uh, in the hospital, now if you know me, especially in recent days, I have, a, I, have, I have many weaknesses, but my main weakness, I, I don't do well in hospitals. I don't like hospitals. It's all mental, I know. It's specifically needles. I just, I can't, I can't do, I just, me and needles are enemies. We're enmity with each other. I do not like them. I know that they help people, but I, I would prefer to never see them ever again. When uh, Titus had to get, uh, he was one years old, he had to get like his blood drawn for something. I... I couldn't even, if you don't believe me, ask my wife, wherever she is, she, uh, I couldn't, I, I brought him into the hospital, and just knowing what was coming, it wasn't even for me, it was for my son, I just, I started to, I started to shake, and I got clammy, and I started to sweat, and I just said, son, I know you're one, but you have to be strong right now, because your father is gone, <laughs> so I said, here's your mother, and he couldn't even stand at that point. And I, I couldn't be in the building, so uh, call me what you will. Uh, I'm working on that. I know it's a lot of it's mental. Well, I'm six years old now. I'm not a big fan of hospitals, and I'm laying there, and they're, you know, they have to hook you up with all kinds of stuff, and uh, the doctor came out and said, we're going to have to put an IV in you, and obviously that means the needle. And I'm pretty sure I was way stronger than I was when I was six than I am now. But I'm laying in bed. My dad, knowing that this is not something I like, uh, which I suppose most kids don't, but he came up to my bedside and he held me by the hand and he said, I'm right here. I'm right here. It's going to hurt. You're not going to like it, but you need this to get better. It's going to make you stronger. So he said, you can grip my hand as hard as you want. Squeeze it. Try to break my hand. He said, but I'm right here. And... Of course, they had to, as they got the IV, and it seems like they know when you hate it the most, that's when they just can't find your vein, right? It's just, I don't know how that works. So it felt like they were poking me for three or four days straight. It's probably just a few seconds. But they finally find it, and after it's done, I just clenched, and you weren't allowed to clench the hand that they're, they're needling, but I just remember squeezing, squeezing. And after it was done, I let go, and my dad said, it's all done, you're good. And knowing that my dad was right there brought comfort to me. Was I still scared? Oh, yes. Did I wish it couldn't have happened? Absolutely. But I remember going through that time, and I was in the hospital for uh, only supposed to be overnight. And to make matters worse, the nurse, maybe she was new, I don't know. But they were, she actually overdosed me on medication. And I had to stay an extra, uh, almost a full week. And with that came more needles and more and with that came more holding and squeezing of dad's hand and my mom being there for me and doing everything they could to comfort me. And I'll tell you what, as a six-year-old, if mom and dad wasn't there, I don't know that it would have been quite as smooth. Actually, I guarantee it would not have been as smooth. Now, my mom and dad did what 
any of you would do for your kids. I know that. When we come to Isaiah chapter 40, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Don't you love comfort? To be comforted when you're anxious, when you're stressed, when you're scared? Don't you like to not have, you wish you could push those feelings away and just feel comforts? I know I speak on behalf of everybody here. We like to be comfortable. You know, comfort is different when you have somebody who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and then you have somebody who doesn't know the Lord as their Savior. Somebody, as we would say, who's saved from their sins, and somebody who's unsaved. Somebody who's a Christian, somebody who's not. That comfort is, is different. It varies. For instance, somebody who is unsaved, they may find, now we would all find comfort in these things too, but when we're stressed or anxious, the unsaved, to look, to feel comfort, they run to vacations, long vacations if they can. They cling and beg for and strive for financial stability to give them comfort. They run to having as many friends as they can, or at least having stable relationships to provide them with comfort. Perhaps a flexible job to allow them to still love, to be free and have fun. They, they cling and hope for strong health to give them the comfort they need to get through the anxieties and fears of life. Now, all of us would like to have any of those, of course. But when we know Jesus Christ, when we know God is our Savior, and we know who He is, our comfort changes. Because we know that long vacations are great and being financially stable, awesome. And we know that having friends and stable relationships, flexible jobs, strong health, man, that we, we would love to have that. We, and we pray for those often. But we know they're still temporary and they're still finite. And they're still based on the economy of man. But when we learn to cling and draw our comfort from God, things change. When Christ is your comfort, long vacations aren't as necessary. Financial stability, friends, flexible jobs, strong health, they aren't, they aren't all that's needed for comfort in life. When we learn to cling to Jesus, we don't need all those things. Sure, we still would like them. When times are tough and anxieties are high, who can we turn to for comfort when it's necessary and when we need it? Should we turn to man for the answers or Almighty God? I think we know the answer. But Isaiah chapter 40 compares the two, man versus God. And as we come to verse 6 in Isaiah chapter 2, Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 6. The Bible says, The voice, now this is God, he is the voice, said unto Isaiah, Cry. And he said, uh, What shall I cry? That's a good question. Jesus says, This is what you need to cry. All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness, therefore, 
thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The first thing we see here in this chapter is man's shortcomings. Man's shortcomings. Man is finite. Man, what is man referred to as in verse 7? Grass. Well, that's, that's mean. <laughs> we're better than that. We're humans. We're, uh, we're, we're, the, we're the highest beings on earth. You know, the Bible says that the animals are in subjection to us. We, we are it. We're not grass. What an insult. This is God speaking to us, saying, um, Thou art all, all flesh, in verse 6, is a grass, and the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the fields. What is grass? Grass is, is it permanent? It's temporary. Grass can be beautiful. It says our goodliness is as flowers. Flowers are pretty. Flowers are good to look at. Flowers beautify houses and beautify structures, and, and they make things look great. So they, they have the appearance. They have usefulness. They're not useless. They're, they're good, but they're still temporary. Because in verse 7, the grass, it withereth. The flower, it fadeth. It's temporary. Man's shortcomings... See, one day you and I, our, our lifespan, it, it has a limit to it. There is no, you can watch sci-fi movies about living forever. It's not true. There's no immortality. One day our soul will go on and live forever. But our flesh is, it's temporary. And our life falls short on the spectrum of eternity. What does Romans 3.23 say? For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We've, we fall short of God's glory. And part of God's glory is His, he, is his eternity. We, we fall short of that eternity. We, we're limited in what we can do. And even though our lives are limited, our eternity is shortened, our life here on earth in comparison to God, well, when you're looking at it that way, yeah, we are like grass. Compared to God who can live and his eternity is forever, we, in the spectrum of eternity, we are like grass. God's man's shortcoming is seen here in verses 6 and 7, but this is where it gets interesting in verse 8. Not only do we see man's shortcoming, but God's superiority. Look in verse 8. The grass withereth, that's us, the flower fadeth, that's our goodliness, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The word of our God shall stand forever. God's word has been here from the beginning of time, and it will remain until the end of time. Man comes and man goes, even man's goodliness, our righteousness, it comes and it goes, but God will remain forever. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God is superior, and in verse 8, we see that he has superior health. His health is unlimited. 
because he was there at the beginning of time and he will be there at the end of time. In John chapter 17 and verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the worlds. Job chapter 36 and verse 26 says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not, neither can the number of his years be searched out. We don't know the infinity of God. It, it surpasses our imagination. It, it can't be comprehended. His, his health goes on and on forever. Verse number 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Not only is God's health, God, God's superiority, he has superior health, he has superior care. God loves us. Yet, when times are tough, that's one of the first things that goes for some reason. First things we forget is his love for us. In verse 9, we just read it, but in verse 9, we are literally instructed to point people to God and remind them of his awesome protection and shepherding care when the times are tough. The reason God is telling Isaiah to speak, to cry to Israel these words is because Israel is still in the middle of captivity right now in this passage. They're living in bondage. They're not a free nation. They're under bondage. They have people telling them what to do. Israel is a servant to another nation at this time. And they are in need of comfort. Isaiah is about to tell them that you're, you're, the end is soon. Keep your eyes on him. But until then, remember that even when you're in the middle of captivity, still you have an obligation to point people to me. Look what it says in verse 9. In the middle, it says, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. When you're going through a tough time, when you're going through maybe a period of fear or anxiety or panic, when, you're, when you don't really know what to do, point to Jesus. We have something that the world doesn't have. If you are here tonight and you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you are one of His children, we have something that the world doesn't have. Think about it. When fear and panic strikes the unsaved, who, what do they have to turn to? Science, man, the news, which not much good, at, not, there's never really anything positive ever on the news. They turn to a comedy, 
to help forget their anxieties. They try to turn to maybe alcohol to, to drown their fears when the tensions are high. I mean, what do you do with all these? They, they go to therapy. They try to work things out. But when we're saved, we know Christ, and we have these fears. What do we do? Lord, I, I don't really want this. Can you just take this from me? Thank you. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful right now. I don't know what to do. Can you help? Can you help me with this? I mean, we have almighty, all-powerful God to look to. So when fear is around and people don't know what to do, we should do our part and point people back to Christ. This isn't a time to question God when you're in these moments. It isn't a time to be fearful or worry. And it's normal to fear those ways, to fear that way when you're in the middle of something. But we have an obligation to say, Behold, your God. And it mentions a few things about God in verse 10. He's kind of referenced as, a, as, a, as like a father would with a strong hand. Look what it says in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand, and with his arm shall rule for him. I pictured that story I told you with my dad, holding my arm strong, saying, I'm here for you. I'm with you. I won't let go. My mom, she's, she's a strong woman. She loves, she's... Uh, she's, she's an amazing person. But when I think of strength in the home, it's my dad. My dad's, the, my dad's the one with the strong arm. If you ask Titus right now, who's strong, mommy or daddy? He says mommy right now, but uh, yeah, he'll learn. He'll learn. Got to work with him on that one. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hands. The Lord has a strong hands. He protects us. But look in verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with the young. Our God is a shepherd. He looks out for his sheep, his flock. Sometimes he allows things to happen to us. We don't know the reason why. God ultimately is in control. But to know that God is in control and he has a reason for it all. He, he takes care of his flock. He counts each one to make sure they're okay and they're safe. He, nothing goes, nothing happens to God without him knowing. In Sunday school, we were talking about nothing catches God off guard. He doesn't look around and go, oh, how did you get there? Whoops, I messed up. Let me just fix that. God has it all planned out before even the foundations of the world. God is like a protecting father and like a caring shepherd. God has superior health. He has superior care. Oh, look at verse 12. God has superior knowledge. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in measures and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to, showed to him the way of understanding? Who taught God? Nobody. God has never been a student. He is the teacher of all teachers. God has never been taught anything. God is the teacher. 
because he is the essence of all things. Job 21 says, Shall any teach God knowledge, seeing he judgeth those that are on high? Job also says in chapter 36, Behold, God exalteth his power. Who teacheth like him? And Paul says in Romans 11, For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. If that didn't cover everything, that did cover everything. God's superior knowledge, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hands. Our world is 70% water, and the Lord holds it in his hands. Who measured and meted out heaven with a span, comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. If you're on a, if you have a scale and you're weighing something, even in grams, and you're trying to get the right weight down, maybe you're cooking something. If there's a little bit of dust on the scale, are you going to, oh, it's off. I need to wipe the dust off first. Now, if you're really picky, perhaps, maybe Brother Andre does. He's a, he's a perfectionist chef. You might wipe the dust off. But if I'm looking at weighing something, and if I'm on my scale, I'm weighing myself, I'm not, gonna, I'm not that desperate yet to wipe the dust off and say, no, that can't be wrong. Let me, let me bring that down just a little bit more here. Here we go. Okay. I'm not that desperate. Dust doesn't really affect a, a measuring scale. I guess if you get enough of it, it can. But a few speckles, it doesn't. The world that we live in, the, the waters, it's, it's, uh, it's like the dust on a scale. It, it doesn't do anything to, to God's magnificence, his power, his superior knowledge. Then in verse 15, we see God's superior size. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The nations of the earth are like the dust in a balance. So small in size and weight, they don't even distort the weight of the balance. Verse 16, the whole forest of Lebanon could not afford a sufficient number of beasts to be sacrificed, nor the quantity of wood worthy to be consumed in a sacrifice. Verse 17 reminds us of Solomon's words. As he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, let us hear the whole conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Our God is, has superior health. He has superior care. He has superior knowledge. He has superior size. He's so big, the world is just dust and his balance. God is so large and so all-powerful. And yet, sometimes we find ourselves doubting him. Exodus chapter 9 and verse 14. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine hearts and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know 
that there is none like me in all the earth. The plagues of Egypt, you remember those? The ten plagues that Moses, uh, let my people go, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not, and uh, God turned the water, the Nile, into blood. He, he uh, frogs came over and, and took over Egypt, and the, the, the lice, and darkness for three days, and the, the boils, and the famine that went through, and the flies, all these plagues. And then the last one was the worst, where the firstborn, who did not have the blood over their door, would pass away. All these things, God allowed these things to happen for one reason, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. God allows things to happen sometimes. We don't like them. We complain sometimes. But perhaps sometimes bad things happen to us as a reminder of who he really is. Just imagine how finite we are. A small strand of bacteria, so small I can't even see it with my eye, can flip the whole world upside down in a couple of months. We're grass. We're like flowers. But God is beyond all of that. God has it all under God sees it all. Exodus reminds us. And then the tables get flipped back over in verse 19. Now we see here man's stupidity. Verse 19. This one gets me. The workmen melted a graven image. And the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. <clears throat> Despite how powerful God is, Israel was still spending their money pouring gold and silver over these idols that they had created so that they can bow and worship these idols. And then, to make it worse, in verse 20, he that is so impoverished that hath no oblation, that's a sacrifice, chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. There were people who were poor, who didn't have money. They didn't even have enough money to make an idol. So what they would do is they would, they would pay what little money they had and find somebody who would cut down the finest tree that they could find. One that wouldn't rot, as it said here in verse 20. They would do what they could, and then they would hire somebody else who would cunningly cut workmen who would prepare and cut the graven image exactly the way it needed to be. Man, they couldn't afford gold and silver, but they would pour in the money that they could to make some kind of an idol that they could worship. The stupidity of man. Have you ever asked yourself, why would somebody worship a stone? Why would somebody worship a tree? Why would somebody worship an inanimate object? Well, perhaps they did so so that they could decide to do what they want to do with their life, knowing that it can't really help them. When you worship something that can't speak back to you, that has no life or form or anything, uh, you're pretty much free to do whatever you want in life. Perhaps that's a reason. Perhaps they're just deceived. Isaiah 46 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God. There is none like me. There's a weird story in Judges. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Do you remember that story? Well, this will be one of our final chapters here. So let's turn to Judges chapter 6 really quick. I'm going to show you the strange story. Judges chapter 6. We're talking about how amazing and superior God is. 
but we can't be forget how simple we can be at times. Judges chapter 6. In verse 28, God had just come to Gideon and said, I want you to lead my people. <laughs> Gideon was like, you, you got the right guy? You, you're talking to me, Lord? Do you even know who I am? I'm the least of my family and the least tribe of Israel. Why, were, why would you pick me? I mean, I'm hiding right now. God says, I didn't make a mistake. I've chosen you. And the first thing I want you to do is go down and destroy the, destroy the idol Baal. In the city center. So, verse 28, and when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove was cut down that was by it. And the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who hath done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. He obviously didn't, wasn't very sneaky. Everybody knew he had done it. Verse 30, then the men of the city said unto Joash, bring out thy son that he may die because he hath cast down the altar of Baal and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash, this is Gideon's father, he said unto all that stood against him, will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Joash was saying, if he's a real God, let him do the punishing. Let him stand up and defy Gideon. Idolatry is committed any time a person places anything where only God belongs. Sometimes we place fear, we place panic. Sometimes we place possessions or items in place of where God belongs. For a Christian, it's much more subtle than just bowing down to a statue. For a Christian, anytime we pursue a desire or perhaps even a dream in place of pursuing God, we have dethroned God and we have committed idolatry. Anytime you determine what you will do for God, what you will do for God, you have replaced God with your own desires. You can do something good for God, but if it's done with the wrong intentions, it's idolatry. You can come to church for the wrong reasons. That's obligation, or I feel like I probably should, or if I don't, my mom will kill me. Why I should come to church? We can come to church and do something good, but with the wrong intentions and can end up becoming a form of idolatry. Why do you come to church? To feel good? Moral obligation? God will rain down blessings on your life? Why do you tithe? So that you can gain back in return? Because you have to? Why do we do what we do? When we consider tonight this idea and this need for comfort, we are reminded in verse 25 of Isaiah chapter 40. And if you're not there, it's okay. But Isaiah chapter 40, I'll just read it for you. In verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal? Saith the Holy One. You read the rest of this chapter and you will find the strength of God 
is beyond anything you or I could ever imagine. The power that he has, the youth shall faint. Do you like comfort? Not to be comforted? When you need comfort, where do you go to? When you're saved, we have Almighty Superior God to cling to. But maybe tonight you're, you don't have God. I mean, you know of God. You know he's out there. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in church here today. But maybe you've never really accepted him as your Lord and Savior. You've never really cried out to him. You've never, never had that personal relationship with God. You can have that relationship with God today. You can cry out to God today. You can have him in your life today. You don't have to wait. Now is the best time to do it. Now is the day of salvation. You can look up to God right now and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I, I, I've done things in my life. I'm not proud of, Lord, and you know what they are. You're all knowing. Lord, forgive me my sins. And Lord, I believe that you are God. There is no other God. You are the only God. And I'd like for you to come in my life and to help me live for you. You can accept Christ as your Lord and Savior right now. No better comfort in life than to know that Jesus Christ is with you at all times and that he has a master plan for your life. A few years back, many of us remember Hurricane Katrina. My family, we were missionaries at that time. We were on deputation. We were traveling around America raising support. And we came to, uh, we, were, we had a schedule to be with some friends in Florida to just, we hadn't seen them in many years. They were our former pastor. I grew up in California and the Johnsons, they had moved there. They had moved, they'd, they'd sold their home, moved to California, started this church and we fell in love with them. But around the time that God had called us to be missionaries, God had also moved the Johnson family to Florida to take over a church that was in need of a pastor. So we hadn't seen them in years. We were excited about it. But as soon as we were about to arrive, Hurricane Katrina hits. And, well, obviously we had to wait, I postpone our trip. So we came about a week after Hurricane Katrina had gone through. And we were pulled up into their, uh, we, they met us somewhere, and they, we followed them to their house. And on the way to their house, trees were falling down, uh, power was out, Houses didn't have roofs. Trailers were upside down. It was a mess. There was people everywhere trying to fix and, and try to make, make sense of what just took place. We got to their house, and surprisingly, their house was, was pretty good. They had a roof, and they had a lot of dings on the front of their window, uh, the front of their door. But we went inside, and we fellowshiped, and we caught up. And then they told us a story of the night that the tornado came through. As Hurricane Katrina was going over, they didn't evacuate their city, their area, because they were kind of on the outskirts of the hurricane. But with this hurricane, a couple of smaller tornadoes were formed kind of all of a sudden and right in their area. The sirens went off, the radio went off, telling people, if you can't get out now, board your windows and hide. 
And here's a family of four, and they're sitting in their living room. And as the wind starts to pick up, and you can look out the window, and you can see the small tornado forming in the distance, not knowing what direction it was going. They folded their, they put their blinds down, they boarded the windows up, they sat in the living room, they opened God's word, and they began to read a verse. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. The wind starts picking up. Rocks start pounding against the side of the, the, the doors. The windows start cracking. The wind starts picking up. Large objects are rolling around outside. Things are getting terrifying. The family kneels down again and says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. They had a barn out back, and they could hear it being just destroyed as the roof was being ripped off. And later, they would find out down the road, one of their neighbors had a trailer, and it literally got picked up off the ground. It was being twirled and hurled uh, many, many feet away from where their house was, into their property. Smashings and turmoil and the wind blowing around, fear and panic breaking out, and the family gathered together, and through the night, fear there not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. The next morning came. They all had fallen asleep on the living room floor. When they woke up, their house was intact. Their roof was still there. Many of the church members uh, had their homes destroyed, but a majority of them were there. What got them through the nights? Was it science? Was it comedy? What got them through the nights was Jesus Christ. No matter what kind of fear or anxiety we may come to in life, we have our God to give us that comfort. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Let's all stand for prayer.